to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael, and thank you for joining me in time traveling around the state of Texas and visiting some of the indigenous peoples that were living here at the time of European arrival. The last time we got together, we visited South Texas and learned about the many bands of that area and of northern Mexico that are grouped under the not altogether accurate name of Coatican. Today, we're going to travel to the Texas Gulf Coast to visit the Karankawas, the very interesting and vibrant people that thrived there for thousands of years. Unfortunately, they have often been disparaged and maligned in the past. We're going to try to clear some of that up. But first, I am very happy to introduce a new segment to our show. The segment's called A Tejano Moment. I've mentioned it in the past couple of times that we've got together. So let's listen to the very first introduction to Tejano history contributed by TexasTejano.com, and then we'll dig into the culture of the Karankawas. This is a Tejano moment, in particular, the beginning of Texas in 1690, and the first soldier settlers posted to the first presidios and towns. They became known as Tejanos. This report is about the heritage and legacy of Tejanos who are descendants of the first Spanish, Mexican, and indigenous families of Texas. Tejanos built the first roads, ranches, and cities at the dawn of Texas. Texas thrived for more than 130 years prior to the creation of the Republic of Mexico. During this period, they established the first laws, government, and commerce with Mexico and the United States. We invite you to learn more about the Tejanos of Texas on texastejano.com. The story of the Tejanos is a rich part of Hispanic heritage. Okay, I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. Special thanks to Mr. Rodriguez and Mr. Tavera of texastejano.com for sharing that. I'm looking forward to learning more from them. Now let's get into the current cause of the Texas Gulf Coast. Now, popular folklore often describes the Karankawas as the most primitive of people, living from day to day without fixed abodes, and more or less they were just scavenging hand to mouth trying to find a way to survive in a harsh and hospitable environment. This, as it turns out, might not really be what it was, and thanks to recent archaeology, we're going to see that it, they actually had a little bit more different lifestyle and a little bit more vibrant and thriving lifestyle and part of the reason i'll give you a little bit of spoiler that they were perceived in that way was one because they did not easily adapt to dealing with people demanding them to follow and take orders at the same time they also suffered a great deal like most peoples did when they came into contact with europeans and the disease started hitting them and their numbers started eroding drastically. But first, let's get into where they lived. The Karankawas called the central coast of Texas home, and as one source describes it, the area can be a bewildering maze of islands, lagoons, and salt marshes. Topography is low and flat, and thick marsh and river green floodplain vegetation often obscures the terrain. An intimate knowledge of this area gave the Karankawas safe sanctuary, for much of their history among the many lagoons and islands for a long time against enemies and against European attackers. 
In addition to an intimate knowledge of their homeland, they also had a deep understanding of the variety of resources offered by the bays, the river valleys, and the coastal prairies. The central coast of Texas is marked by five major, nearly contiguous estuarine bays that are separated from the Gulf of Mexico by a protective chain of narrow barrier islands that I discussed in Lesson 2, The Land. Narrow tidal passes connect the Bay Lagoon estuaries with the Gulf. Almost immediately off the mainland shoreline is the coastal prairie, which is flat and only significantly broken by dune formations and stream channels. The region's climate is best characterized by hot summers and mild winters, much like a lot of Texas is. The Karankawas are likely descendants of the peoples that arrived at the Texas coast thousands of years ago during the last glacial period when sea levels were hundreds of feet lower than today. We've covered this in pretty great detail, I know. The continental shelf was dry land, and coastal rivers cut deep channels and valleys along the coast. At the glacial maximum some 20,000 years ago, the coastline was miles and miles to the east of the present shoreline. As global climate warmed, these valleys that had been carved out were filled by the rising sea levels, and the bays that we know today were born. Sea level reached their current levels about 3,000 years ago, and the present barrier islands, it's believed, they were created by wave action and longshore drift, depositing the sand and shell that make them up, and they might have reached their present configuration as little as 2,000 years ago. The Karakawas that lived there were made up of five principal groups related by language and culture. The Kokos were apparently the most northeastern group. These people were reported to have their camps primarily around the lower Colorado River in 1768, though some Kokos were present on the lower Brazos along with people of various and other native groups. The Caracoa proper occupied Matagorda Bay and the Matagorda Peninsula. They were not necessarily the largest or most dominant Caracoan group. The mixing of peoples along the lower Brazos suggests that this drainage may have been an ethnic boundary zone between Karankawas and non-Karankawas in the 1760s. The third group is the Kuhanes. Uh, historian Herbert Bolton places them and the fourth group, the Wapites, on either side of Matagorda Bay, particularly, he says, to the west of it, though he did not reveal the basis for these conclusions or on group locations. And the fifth group, the Copanes, or the Copanos, dwelled along Copano Bay and on St. Joseph Island and the northern shore of Corpus Christi Bay. The people south of Corpus Christi Bay and Mustang Island were some of the Coatecan nations we discussed in the last lesson. The Barados inhabited the lower coast from the Rio Grande to the vicinity of Baffin Bay, and a related group, the Malakites, lived to the northward as far as Corpus Christi Bay. Now, one of the things that marked the Karakawas as different from neighboring indigenous peoples was their physical stature. Karakawas were reported as being unusually tall for Native Americans. Men often attained the height of six feet and were praised for their great strength. We do not know for certain to what extent the stature of the Karankawas can be attributed to genetics or to the fact that they had a year-round high-protein diet, or it might have just been some combination of the two. The men often went naked or wore breechcloths, loincloths, 
They pierce their lower lips, like the Coaticans, and the nipple of each breast with pieces of cane. Women wore skirts made of Spanish moss and deer skin. They painted and tattooed their bodies in several ways, also like the Coaticans. And I'll also mention, some people believe there is a relation between the Coaticans and the Karankawas, but there's nothing definite that can be shown other than they shared similar cultural things like this. Definitely had different languages. When preparing for war, each warrior painted one half of his face black and the other red. And also like the Coaticans, they wore very long loincloths bordered with tassels and fringes, some almost touching the ground behind them. They were noted for being very ferocious in battle, very strong, very expert with the bow and arrow. And one record states that when the Karankawas had full bellies, they were happy, merry, and generous people, though. You just didn't want to make them angry. Cabeza de Vaca recorded the Karankawa's ability to withstand hunger, thirst, and cold in his remembrances of his time with them. And another observer named De Solis was also awed by their physical prowess. He wrote, They go naked in the most burning sun. They suffer and go around without covering themselves or taking refuge in the shade. In the winter, when it snows and freezes so that the water in the rivers is solid and the pools, lakes, marshes, and creeks are covered with ice, they go out from the ranch at early dawn to take a bath, breaking the ice with their body. Tough people, adapted to the climate and region. Despite the commonly held notion that Karankawas were constantly moving about in small groups, to and fro, struggling to survive, just off anything they could find and eat, recent archaeological research has pretty much discounted this. As Robert Rickless wrote in the Karankawa Indians of Texas, large sites, highly productive of cultural materials, often indicate intensive occupations perhaps by rather large groups of people and perhaps for extended periods of time where people congregate in large numbers for any length of time. It can be assumed that they have the know-how with which to procure rich and abundant resources and the ability to process the resources and distribute them among members of their society and that they employ rather sophisticated social mechanisms with which to maintain group cohesion. Sites that have been found in research suggest that this was the case for the Karankawas. Karankawas also made distinctive pottery vessels, wide-mouthed jars, ollas, bowls, and perhaps bottles. They cooked meat, fish, and other foods in them, placing the round bottoms in ashes and live coals. They would cook oysters by placing them in the fire live coals and rake them out to eat when they began to open. And they used milling stones to crush nuts and seeds to make a flour. Now, it is true that Karankawas were non-agricultural hunter-gatherer fishers, but at the same time, they had detailed and intimate knowledge of their environments. They had fine-tuned adaptive strategies, not to mention rich mythologies and folklore. Again, to quote Rikles, they knew where to find the key resources they needed to sustain a viable subsistence economy. And they understood how to move strategically within their environment so that those resources could be obtained when and where they were most abundant. Because they had expert knowledge of the time and places of greatest availabilities of important subsistence resources, 
they were able to adjust the size and duration of encampments with minimal risk of food shortages. Now, I want to add a little aside. A lot of early settlers, Anglo settlers, had a very difficult time during times of drought, even finding water, but they were always amazed that the Karankawas always had sources of fresh water with which they could provide for themselves. This shows years and years and years of growing up in a specific environment and adapting to every change, whether in wet or dry years, they knew how to get the most out of their environment and do what they needed to to survive. The coastal waters supplied the Karankawas with oysters, clams, scallops, and other mollusks, turtles, undoubtedly a great, great variety of fish, porpoises, which you can see if you ever ride the ferry between Bolivar Peninsula and Gallison Island, you'll see them in pretty good abundance. How they were able to uh, spear or arrow them would have been a, a quite an adventure. And they also had underwater plants they could eat. They also hunted alligators, whose grease they smeared over their skin on their bodies to discourage mosquitoes. The mainland also provided a variety to eat. They had bear to hunt. Pecoraries, which were a small kind of swine, smaller ant mammals to eat, rabbits, rodents, squirrels, whatever, birds, berries, nuts, seeds, and other plant foods. They lived by the sea, but they were not a maritime people. They based their livelihood on the resources of the shallow bays and lagoons found behind the barrier islands that parallels the mainland. And they did use canoes to actually travel out and live on the islands themselves at the times of year that it was in their best interest to do so. The chief weapon of Karankawas was a long bow and arrows. The weapons were said to be as long as the man was tall, with arrows of up to three feet in length. It's said that they could kill prey a hundred yards away. One story has it that a Karankawa shot a young bear that was in a tree the arrow went through the bear and then traveled another 40 or 50 yards and then buried itself in the ground great strength a lot of force and know how about how to use their weapons it's reported that cedar is the wood they used to make their bows and the bowstrings were out of deer sinew and they would take a quantity of the fine sinews and twist them together to make the bowstring also much like the Coaticans. It's generally believed that the bands were comprised of close-knit body of kinsmen that were headed by chiefs. An anthropologist named Gachet claimed, What we know about their tribal rulers is that they were ruled by two kinds of chiefs. They had chiefs for their civil government, whose succession was hereditary in the rule line, and war chiefs appointed probably by civil chiefs. No women have ever been known to have acted as chiefs. A word of caution, where this source was quoted, also notes that we're not really sure where he got his information because we don't have a lot of information about this. They seem to more than likely to have had a structure more similar to the Coaticans, where whoever was the leader at the time probably could have been replaced, but we just don't know. And if I find out in the future, because we're going to be dealing with all of these indigenous peoples in the future, 
the purpose of these lessons is just to introduce their lives and cultures to you with a brief overview of what happened to them after contact. No great detail. If I find any more information about this out, I'll definitely share it in the future. They reacted to death with much ceremony, especially the deaths of boys and young men who were mourned for an entire year. Before dawn, at noon, and at sunset, they wept for the dead. And at the end of the year, the mourners purified themselves with smoke. I remember reading one of the accounts of when some people had died in Cabeza de Vaca's group. They sat down, the Karankawas that were there, sat down and wept openly for the death of the Spaniards. Now, the Karankawas have usually been disparaged as bloodthirsty cannibals. Very little evidence that is firsthand supports this statement. The Karankawas who aided Cabeza de Vaca and the shipwrecked Spaniards of the Narvaez expedition in 1528 reacted in horror when they witnessed the Spaniards eating dead members of their own party. De Vaca even thought at one point that there was a chance they would kill them for doing this. But they did not, luckily, for the surviving Spaniards' sake. Nothing further in his writing on the accounts of the Indians between the island of ill fate that he landed on and the Rio Grande suggests any sorts of cannibalism at all. Some indigenous peoples, like the Karankawas, probably did practice a form of ritualistic cannibalism, not from hunger, but for magic or for revenge. It's believed that they saw it as a way to gain an enemy's courage or fortitude. A lot of these stories of the Karankawas being bloodthirsty and ruthless is because sometimes when you're pushed, you fight back. As we'll see in the future, that was often the case. When met with force, you react with force. And how better to make it easy for you to go out and kill your opponent as if you can dehumanize them, make them lesser, make them, quote, savages and cannibals when you tell people to fire them up to go help you in annihilating them. So that's just something about that that I wanted to add. Karankawas worship two divinities, Piccini and Mel. And I don't know much about what their beliefs were about them. Again, that's something maybe... If I can discover more, I'll share it. But one observer recorded the Karankawas worshipped them and their dances, especially the funeral dances, were kind of a practice for where they would dance and pray for liberty, victory, prosperity in the chase, abundance in fishing, or happy results in their endeavors. The ministers, the shamans, were called Comas, who oversaw their religion and they were the people responsible for promoting, directing, and presiding over what they called metotes. Basically, the dances is what, that's the term for that. Fishing probably peaked during the fall and winter at the same time that the harvest of nuts and roots would have been good. And they stayed close to the coast, where they relied heavily on shellfish, aquatic plants, and waterfowl, but also hunted deer and even alligators. The fish and shellfish resources of the bays and lagoons of the Texas Central Coast provided rich harvests. For life along the bays and lagoons, Karankawas built small canoes from tree trunks and made nets. They used an assortment of different traps. 
They had lances, and again, they used their bows and arrows with great expertise. The houses they lived in were circular pole frame structures that they would cover with mats or hides, also sounding pretty similar to the Coatecans. And they apparently could transport these in their canoes. Following the slowing and fishing, the tension would have shifted inland to hunting bison and deer, where they would have also gathered grains, fruits, and seeds. The most important mammals for the Karankawas were the white-tailed deer and the buffalo. The deer would have been scattered, and hunting them would have taken a certain set of skills, whereas the bison, being larger, would have also taken a certain set of skills, but they would usually have been found in herds and easier to locate. With the change of the seasons, they would have utilized different kinds of plant resources. Acorns and pecans would have been gathered in the fall, with acorns concentrated along the shoreline and the oak moths on the sands and pecans that grew along the rivers. They also ate various edible greens, primarily March plants such as cattails. Cattail roots are edible in the fall and in winter, and they're a good source of starchy carbohydrate. During the spring and summer, Karankawas moved inland to the coastal prairies, as I said, and woodlands. And like I said before, they relied less on marine life, but they would have fished and caught fish in the creeks and in the rivers. But they focused more on bison and deer, but also rabbits and prairie fowl. They'd gather mesquite beans and fruits. During the spring and summer, they would eat the prickly pear cactus pads and the fruits. They're often called tunas during the summer. They would find berries to to supply them with something to eat also during the spring and summer, and mesquite beans would be harvested during the summer. It is believed that spring and summer was the most affluent time for them when the largest groups would gather together, where and when food resources were most predictable and most concentrated. Historical observations by Cabeza de Vodka and others suggest that the groups would congregate in sizes as big as four to five hundred. Now, as I said, the earliest recorded contact between Europeans and Karankawas occurred when Cabeza de Vaca and other survivors of Novea's expedition shipwrecked possibly on Galveston in 1528 and lived with them for about a year. And then they moved inland. Now, how many Karankawas were there? It's very difficult to say. But it's estimated by researchers that in the late 1600s, about 1685, they put the number up as high as 8,000. Pathogens such as smallpox and measles had already made devastating impacts on them. During the first winter among his life with the Indians, Cabeza de Vaca reported that about one half of the natives died from a stomach ailment. And the only thing keeping them from killing the Spaniards, because they blamed them for it, was because some Spaniards were suffering from it as well. Bloodthirsty and hateful. Doesn't seem to add up from some of the stories Cabeza Vacas shares. By 1751, there were only 2,500 of them left. We'll see that number drop drastically in the next 100 years. Now, early contact began, or I should say early sustained contact began in the late 1600s and early 1700s when these epidemics caused much more massive population decline. 
This led to group mergers and demographic stabilization for the Karankas. The years of 1720s to the 1780s were a time of hostilities and raiding, followed by a peaceful period from the 1780s to the 1800s during the late Spanish mission era, when the Comanches, if you remember one of the reasons the Coaticans, were inclined to joining in with the missions was because of the Comanche harassment and warfare against them. And the Comanches arrived in the 1750s, and apparently they were also a burden for the Karankawas. In the early 1800s, there were attempts at acculturation, but the arrival of the Anglo-Americans in the 1820s led to the destruction of the Karankawa as a people. Now, the first contact in the 1520s with those members of the Narvaez expedition was short-lived. Sustained contact began when Frenchman LaSalle brought his expedition to Matagorda Bay in 1685. And let's just say it wasn't a good experience for um, anybody. The Karankawas didn't really like LaSalle's attitude. And as we'll see, that a lot of the people in uh, LaSalle's expedition didn't like his attitude either. And he didn't come to a very good end. The Karankawas didn't kill him. His own people did later on. But the first experience the Karankawas had with him was when LaSalle ordered some of his men to commandeer some of the canoes. And let's just say that decision just to step in and take what you want didn't end very well for the French. We'll cover this in much greater detail later. French traders were operating in East Texas as early as the 1700s. And these activities may have involved some contact with Karakawan people. By mid-century, French traders were doing a brisk fur trade business in East Texas and the Galveston Bay area that involved at least one Karankawan group, the Cocos. Now, the fear of French incursions began Spain's attempt to establish a string of missions in Texas in 1690, first in East Texas and later in the San Antonio River Valley. We covered a lot of that last week episode with about the Coatacans. An interesting note I don't want to miss before we get too far on here is regarding horses. One observer witnessed as early as 1720 that Karankawas had adapted to horses for hunting and traveling. Now these horses were either taken from feral herds descended from strays of the early East Texas missions or perhaps from horses left behind by the Elliot own expedition of 1689-1690 or, or both. In 1721-1722 the mission Nuestra Señora del Espiritu Santo and its presidio Nuestra Señora de Loreto or La Bahia were established on Garcitas Creek not far from La Baca Bay in the site of La Salle's fort that he established there. It's said to have attracted four Karankawan groups the Cocos Kuhanes, Guipetes, and the Karankawa proper. But it had little effect, and when we get to a later quote, we'll see why. It was reestablished in 1726 along with Presidio La Bahia further inland on the lower Guadalupe River, and then it moved again in 1749 to their final location on the San Antonio River at modern Goliad. The 1750s attempt with Nuestra Señora del Rosario expressly intended for car and call on groups and was accordingly sometimes referred to as Nuestra Señora del Rosario de los Cujanes, a generic term for the various Karankawas. 
It also had minimal success in converting Karankawas, and the, they had basically stopped visiting by the 1780s. Karankawas were fiercely independent, but they did see their early missions as a tool with which they could add to their resources. Karankawas stayed at odds with the Spaniards until the last decades of the 18th century. They were angry over the diseases they suffered and died from, and the attacks the Europeans made against Karankawas' camps in retaliation for cattle rustling undertaken by the Karankawas. Some of the retaliations for theft would be extremely harsh, and they were so angry with the Spanish that they even supplied the Apaches with guns that they acquired from Louisiana. During the last decades of the 18th century, the Karankawas started to become under constant attack by the Comanches and some other tribes, and the former experienced rapid population losses because of warfare and from further disease. So then, in the 1790s and early 1800s, the Karankawas finally turned to the missions, at least to Nuestra Senora del Refugio Mission in present-day Calhoun County that had been established for them in 1793. And they integrated the religious institutions into their survival patterns. Missions provided them with shelter from the Comanches. And it provided them with more sustenance. At least during those times of year when fishing and foraging through the coastal areas yielded insufficient foodstuffs. Now, to quote Rickless again in his book, The Karankawas were neither hapless victims of colonization nor intractably confrontational towards newcomers to their homeland. I'll insert here. He's arguing this despite a lot of contemporary records. He argues, rather they drew upon their own cultural tradition rooted in long-lived adaptive patterns indicated archaeologically to develop what was ultimately a viable and peaceful interaction with political, social, and religious dimensions of colonial Spanish culture. We see that the Karankawas, like various other relatively small-scale societies, were able to cope with rapid change once foreign elements of colonization were integrated within traditional cultural ecological patterns. When the Spanish established their first mission near the coast in 1722, Rickley states, the Karankawas showed considerable interest in what the foreigners had to offer. It was only after the apparently intolerant commander of the mission's military garrison ordered his soldiers to ambush Indian men, women, and children that the Karankawas, feeling deeply betrayed, viewed Spanish colonial settlement with hostility. And that, Rickles argues, is what led to the decades of fighting that followed that debacle and led to the warfare that would last between the Karankawas and Spanish colonial soldiers up until the 1780s. Now, after a period of acculturation in the late 1700s, early 1800s, during the 1820s, the Karankawan population appears to have had a rapid decline to about half its size at the beginning of the century. By 1840, it was said that the Karankawas had only about 25 warriors and a population of no more than 100 individuals. 8,000 to 100. By the 1850s, the Karankawas had disappeared as an identifiable group. Hostilities 
from other native populations and from foreign populations, Anglo and European populations, and the continued attrition caused by disease were largely responsible for this. There's also this statement here. Some survivors of the catastrophic depopulation of the 1820s or the 1840s probably dispersed. They tried to get away. Some tried to get to Mexico. There was a big battle in the 18, late 1850s where a small band of them were slaughtered on the down by the near the border. And they would have been absorbed if they did get there into other viable populations. Now, one source that I've been following when doing research states on his website that he's actually been contacted uh, from the Gulf Coast by people that say, wait, we're not necessarily gone. We're just not, we don't have a large community anymore. A lot of them did intermarry into Hispanic families. A lot of them married into African-American families. So their descendants are probably still here in Texas. We just, there's no group like we have of the Tate Pilum Coatican Nation that stands up and says, look, we're here. But for most purposes, they are considered to be extinct by 1859. Newcomb and his classic Indians of Texas closes out his section on it by writing to Europeans and Texans it was astonishing and insufferable that such a people should prefer their own gods food and customs to civilization's blessings but they did and they clung to these ancestral ways and for this they perished to persevere to such ultimate tragedy is a highway to continuing remembrance he tried to put as nice of a light on it as he could but let's get back to the archaeologist Rickles, who has a little bit different take on it. He agrees and disagrees somewhat in his writing about it, but he continues his argument, and with this we'll close. Nonetheless, in 1789, the Karankawas established a peace that was to endure, for the most part, right up to the closing of the last of the Spanish missions, some 40 years later. During this period, largely unrecognized by historians, the Karankawas succeeded in integrating the foreign presence into their world, adjusted to colonial culture, and even became political allies of the Spaniards. Although later Anglo-American settlement of Texas forced the Karankawas to abandon their homeland, these decades of successful adjustment to colonial culture represent a remarkable story of human adaptability that belies simplistic notions of stubbornly intractable savages. And I'm very thankful to have found this book expertly researched, deeply filled with information that's way beyond my knowledge. Um, a lot of archaeological evidence, and it, it's, a, it's a good book. I recommend checking that out. I also recommend Newcomb's book. It's an older, it's definitely dated. It's a lot harsher in its terms for the way native populations are often described. He tries to shine as positive a lot, I guess, as he does. But considering when he was doing the writing, it's um, not necessarily um, very um, 
appropriate as some, I think, some Native American populations would look at it and say it's downright insulting some of the terms he uses. But I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you got something out of it. I did. I got a lot out of it. And the, the underlying theme since day one when I started recording Texas History Lessons is humankind's adaptability to adverse scenarios. And this is another example of that. I want to thank you for listening. We do have a website now, texashistorylessons.com. And right now it's pretty simple. I'm planning on putting recommended reading for each episode. So if you are interested in learning more and finding out more, that I can help guide you to some good books and other sources that are available. I have other ideas for it as well. And one of the reasons I was able to make the website, and I'm actually very happy with it because it made it very easy for me because it was recommended to me by a gentleman named Josh who has a history podcast on Western history, history of the West, that focuses on individual biographies of notable Western figures that you've heard of everywhere from Quanah Parker to Judge Rory Bean. And he does an excellent job. I can tell he does a lot of work in it. And I I enjoy the heck out of listening to it. I will warn you, he has a, how do I say this, somewhat irreverent sense of humor. He uses some colorful language and touches on some things that some people might be sensitive to. I find him refreshing take on some subjects. But just be warned, might not want to let your kids hear you some of the episodes but that's not a knock on him i love what he's doing he brings a lot of passion to it and um yeah so check it out it's the bloody beaver podcast and he's covered lots of interesting figures he's done an entire episode that i really loved on on lonesome dove and tying it into the true story of charles goodnight and oliver loving and there's a lot there to check out um, please, please go check out TexasTejano.com. The people that I've talked to from that, there's some wonderful, passionate people about Tejano heritage, Tejano history. They are extremely knowledgeable, which is I'm very happy to have them adding something very positive and informative and fact-based to this podcast. And I look forward to their future contributions. You can... Reach the show at Texas History Lessons at gmail.com. That's all together, lowercase. We're on Twitter at Texas History L. And there is a Facebook, Texas History Lessons. Be, they'll be in the show notes. I'll put sh- links to Texas Tejano and everything I've referenced here in there. And uh, anything else? Thanks to everybody listening. I've got a list here of about 15 people I want to thank, but I've misplaced it. And um, I'm going to save it for next time. I've had so much positive support from so many of you, and it's very, very rewarding, and it makes it worthwhile just for that. Because sometimes I'm not necessarily happy myself with what I'm doing. And then I'll get out of nowhere. Somebody will contact me and say, man, I really dug that episode. So thank you to all of you. 
If you do have criticism or suggestions for topics or suggestions on how I'm doing it, just let me know. Try to make things better constantly here. And until next time, when we look at another one of the indigenous groups that were here at Time of Contact, thank you for listening. Adios.